Hello and welcome to Office Hours, a podcast about campus politics in the end times. We're your hosts, Laura Martin and David Spataro. Today we're going to try something a little different. Instead of having a guest, David and I are going to talk about a couple of ongoing struggles in higher ed. We've got updates on the graduate student worker strike at Temple University, and then we'll discuss the latest right-wing attacks on higher ed and trans health in Florida. David here with a quick update. We recorded this episode in early March, and we're launching it on March 13th. In the in-between time, the Temple University grad students reached a tentative agreement that was announced just as I was producing this episode. So some of the info here is getting dated, but we still felt the conversation was an important one. Enjoy. So David, uh, I thought I would spend a little time here just sharing some updates about the graduate student worker strike happening at Temple University. Um, We talked a little bit about it during our last podcast, and I have some updates in terms of what's going on with the strike. And then I also have been doing a little bit of just research on on background um, on the context of the strike the um, president of Temple University, as well as just looking at some of the coverage um, that's been going on as the strike continues. So uh, when we last recorded, I I shared that the the grad student union, so they're called TUGSA, um, Temple University Graduate Student Association, they started striking about a month ago. Uh, after a year of working without a contract and uh, what was then breaking news that had happened just a couple days before we recorded was that the administration had basically undertaken these you know unprecedented tactics of taking away the health care and the tuition remission for striking workers um, now several weeks later we're recording this on march 1st that move seems to mostly have just energized the rank and file and given the strike you know national attention because that really has has is very unprecedented for a university to do that and particularly taking away people's health care is just you know a really immoral act so i think it's galvanized a lot of people so does that just to jump in did that go from threat to like really did occur as far as i can tell yes that did occur mm-hmm. and i don't i don't know that it it has been like enacted on everyone that's gone on strike so basically they've continued striking a week ago the leadership reached a like quote unquote tentative agreement but it's kind of an interesting situation um because And I'll just share with you the language from Tugsa. um, And this is just from their Twitter account. So they they brought this tentative agreement to the membership because apparently, according to them, Temple, the administration made this agreement offer and told them to bring it to the members for a vote before they would continue to bargain further. So the way they phrased it, um, it sounded like the leadership didn't they weren't particularly trying to 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 sell this agreement to the membership right um they were just kind of bringing it to the members as you know as a way to continue the bargaining process almost and it was um not a great <laughs> offer 
So uh, according to TUGSA, it would increase the average TA or RA paid to around 21500 by the end of the contract. Wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> 21000 I know, and that's an increase, yeah. Uh, by the end of the contract in 2026, the average TA or RA would be making just over $23,600. So not enough. And then on dependent care, they offered no monetary support. Now, if you remember, one of the big issues for the, the striking workers is um, dependent health care for people's, you know, partners and children. Temple says that they will, quote unquote, look into more affordable plans for dependents. So, um, you know, somewhat unusually for when a union makes a tentative agreement, um, the membership rejected it. Well, they voted over 92 percent to reject the agreement with over 83% of the membership voting. Wow. And it sounded like the leadership was, you know, I mean, often when this type of thing happens, it's the result of some serious internal conflict between the leadership and the rank and file. It doesn't sound like that was the case this time. I'm not, you know, I don't have inside connections into the rank and file, so I don't really know the dynamics, but it doesn't seem to be that that was the issue. Um, so the leadership said, because we made, uh, because the results of this vote are so decisive, we believe we have a democratic mandate to return to the table and settle a contract that provides members with what they need and can pass ratification. So, um, in a way it just served to really show that, um, members aren't going to settle for less. And it seems like the strike has continued to grow been getting a lot of media attention yesterday there was an undergrad student strike it was just it looks like it was just a one day campus wide kind of walk out and shut down but so you know it looks like they're getting support from undergrads and it, it looks like students were coming from other colleges as well i know that other graduate student associations have done some solidarity actions and a lot of other unions have written statements in support so as of this recording you know it's still really like a heated a heated dispute and remains to be seen where it's going to go well this conflict seems to me to be sort of marked by the ruthlessness of the mm. admin right on the on that issue of taking away people's health care and taking um, forcing them to pay tuition that seems like things that in other institutions were only threats used as leverage rather than enacted on but then also I can't even think strategically as to why the admin forced that tentative agreement to be voted on to go back. Like, I can't even think, I understand the ruthlessness increases, potentially increases your leverage if you're on the side of the admin, but I can't even understand why that mm -hmm. TA. I mean, maybe they just thought that the word tentative agreement, you know, the phrase tentative agreement would just sound so exciting to people um, that they would take it. I mean, and it did kind of, they the administration put out a little kind of press release after the the it was voted down where it was like you know the, the we met in good faith and we gave this agreement and the leadership you know told us they had every intention of you know getting it passed or convincing the the rank and file to ratify it so they almost made it sound like the leadership had kind of manipulated them i, I can't imagine that very many people were you know really I don't know, had, yeah. had, it, had their minds changed or anything by that, but perhaps they thought they could kind of spin it a certain way, like, oh, we're so close to having this strike over, but this, um, you know, intransigent 
rank and file. I don't know. That's all. I, that's all I can think. I don't know. A topic that's come up in in our episodes dealing with the the union drives and the strikes and the has been what is the role of a bargaining team once a TA is is sort of agreed upon? Does the bargaining unit, sorry, does the bargaining team then have to become some sort of cheerleader? And it seems like in in a lot of cases, the bargaining team does end up, you know, kind of taking this position that can cause friction where you're like, you were in the room, other members weren't in the room, if it's not open bargaining, you were in the room, you uh, kind of struck a deal, and now you're taking the deal and you're having to promote it. And that does seem to put people in a, in a difficult position. Whereas here, it sort of just seems like they wouldn't take that on when they ha- had the TA. And so, yeah. like, you know, I kind of, in a sense, I, d- I don't know the details either, just like you, but I kind of applaud them for not taking it on and being cheerleaders. And mm-hmm. potentially I could even see that being a huge positive if that opens up this notion that like when you're in the bargaining table, you don't have to then become a, a, a cheerleader. You can actually right. embrace. I mean, it literally is about showing the membership what's on the table and giving them a chance to decide if, I mean, you know, I, I mean. Yes. Not putting your thumb on the scales, right? Just yeah. I mean, it, it would be membership. interesting to know, you know, I think there's a lot of power that comes from how you present the agreement to the membership i mean most of the time what we hear is um we we think this is a great agreement you know we've worked really hard we think we've gotten a lot of the key demands you know we're giving the members four hours (laughs) to look at like an excerpt of the agreement and then there'll be a vote so there's always this sense that um there's there's almost like a fear of the membership you know perhaps not wanting to ratify it and kind of messing up the um what the leadership has kind of decided is like the best way forward and so yeah i mean it obviously doesn't have to be that way right if the if the bargaining team is just a conduit of information to the membership then it's like well be as transparent as possible and let the members decide right yeah and i think the other piece of this that to me is really intriguing and worth watching and monitoring is the notion of no votes being potentially uh, successful. Because mm. I think that things catch fire when it comes to organizing and when it comes to strategies. And you could you could potentially talk about the UC strike that no vote did fail, but um, it was it was prominent. It was out there. If you were on social media, you're certainly hearing a lot about the no vote. And then to then see here in the Temple case, a no vote that's just overwhelmingly, there's messages there to rank and file that those messages are a no vote can be successful, a no vote, mm-hmm. because I mean- That's speaking, a great point, David. Speaking personally, like I have been in big bargaining units with, you know, where we've been frustrated with what we got back at PSC at CUNY, and then here currently at Bellevue in my current institution, there have been some, you know, no votes, but they've been so small, the overwhelming feeling has been you can't really win a no vote. So mm-hmm. um, I'd just be interested to see how much that catches fire and whether it gives rank and file a bit more leverage. Hey, Temple, they voted mm-hmm. no, 90%. Right. Right. Um, yeah, you- I mean, a no vote really gets attention because it's not the norm, right? There's like this smooth trajectory that's supposed to happen when a union goes on strike which is you know you go on strike 
um, the the employer comes back to the table, they make a better offer, the union brings it to the membership, they vote yes, and then the whole thing's over. And so when that doesn't go as planned, it feels like it, it makes people take notice and and there's there it definitely gives you a sense that this must be a place where the rank and file is really energized and motivated yeah well and that the the turnout for that vote is also pretty yeah 82 percent yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah. yeah i and saw it, on twitter some people's classes were being canceled Have mm-hmm. you seen I, that? I saw that as well and i also saw speakers were canceling their um you know their lecture their you know they invited speakers who are giving like one-time talks at whatever event or something we're canceling in solidarity so yeah yeah um in terms of the strategy from the admin's point of view uh there is i did read an article from i wanted to kind of transition a little bit to talking about a few articles that i've been reading uh, about what's been going on at temple and I, I mean, I, I'll get to, I'll get to this, the connection in a second. But this author um, did have a theory about uh, why Temple might be taking the tactics that it's taking. I'm kind of curious what you think. But anyway, so let me, let me tell you a little bit about. This is an article that was published in the Los Angeles Review of Books. Let's see when was it published? Just, just a week ago, February 23rd, by Matt Sebold or Sebold. And it is about the president of Temple University, a fellow by the name of Jason Wingard. So it's called Jason Wingard's EdTech Griftopia. And um, it's just really interesting context for the strike. And it, I think that it just kind of, it, it, it very um, kind of neatly puts what's happening at Temple in the context of these this much bigger crisis in higher ed and these basically potential different directions for for the future of higher ed you know obviously the vision of ed tech and jason wingard is kind of like our dystopia <laughs> but you know the cross this is in a way it's, it's, you sort of get this sense that the, of the stakes being high and this kind of being a crossroads where kind of depending on how these these things go not just at temple but at other institutions you know we could really be seeing um some some radically dystopian visions of higher ed or or potentially you know if we're really able to build a movement, something that would be much, you know, much more um, along the lines of what what people like you and I would want. So just a little bit about Temple President Jason Wingard. So he definitely comes from the business community. He was the vice dean of the Wharton School at Penn. Uh, he was the dean at Columbia's School of Professional Studies, and he also worked with Goldman Sachs, like the Goldman Sachs University, which I guess is their managerial training program. He was the former chief learning officer. So he's now president of Temple University. Um, he he truly seems like a terrible garbage person. <laughs> um, but but one thing that, that um, Matt Sable, the author of this article, points out is that as this strike is unfolding... Uh, Wingard is going on tour to promote a book that he wrote last year. Now, the name of this book is, it's a Stanford Business Books release, The College Devaluation Crisis, Market Disruption, Diminishing ROI, which is Return on Investment, and an Alternative Future of Learning. And um, Sabold kind of characterizes this as 
a prophecy of U.S. higher education's imminent collapse under the weight of its allegedly outdated and overpriced system of instruction. So, I mean, as far as I can tell, it's a pretty straightforward, just kind of like manifesto on privatization. He's heavily into ed tech and basically this kind of, you know, gigification of higher ed. You know, the author makes a lot of references to Uber and DoorDash, you know, um, I'll read you some quotes because he's a good writer. <laughs> so he says um, that according to Wingard and his kind of ed tech crew, academic workers are an inconvenient impediment to ed tech's capture of an ever larger share of the hundreds of billions of dollars that flow through U.S. higher education institutions annually. Graduate students are not a constituency essential to the functioning of the university, Rather, they are human capital that needs to be written off the sunk costs of an obsolescent model and their strike a welcome opportunity for a market disruption in people management. So this is where he kind of puts forward a little bit of his theory, which is he doesn't go into it very much, but, you know, he he uses this concept of market disruption, which I guess Jason Wingard is really into, <laughs> um, which, as I understand, is just like a moment in the market for you know a, 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 whatever the, the sector is where there's such a large disruption that the industry is forced to kind of like make like radical changes and adaptations right so um, a crisis basically from the perspective of capital being an impetus for innovation and basically further accumulation of profit so uh, a way to like kind of shed the dead weight right so he kind of posits that someone like wingard might actually be interested in a prolonged strike to kind of further this crisis and this perception of higher ed as being in crisis because his purpose is basically to convince not just investors but also um sectors of you know relevant sectors of government that the university system is no longer functioning and needs to be um retooled uh, and further privatized and retooled basically along corporate lines you know i don't know if that theory is true but i think it's it's kind of interesting you know we we would i i would if that is true i would imagine it kind of points to like you know some divisions within probably the the higher administration of temple university i would imagine a lot of people want the strike to be over as quickly as possible and find it to be um kind of like bad bad for their image but perhaps jason wingard is kind of like you know doing that what is it the evil the evil villain like finger finger um what do you call it when you tap your fingers together this is an this is an audio medium so you're not seeing what i'm doing but uh, laura is touching her fingers together in a menacing kind of way yeah one well, and, and it could, yeah so it could you know, earlier I sort of said, I, I understand the scorched earth kind of threats, but not the submitting the TA. But I guess I do see, you know, if you're like, if you are trying to sort of manufacture a crisis, even beyond the pre-existing crisis that grad students feel when they only make $21,000 and so forth. And I think that that could be a potential strategy. And it could obviously sort of be the type of strategy that we saw in things like the New Orleans public school system following Katrina, these kinds of shock doctrine type, you know, once uh, an institution is is really burned down, then the potential to, to like... Yeah, it's like the disaster capitalism, you know, model. Yeah. And I, that piece is, 
you know, it's worrisome just in the extent that we have college presidents who don't see themselves as, you know, doing public, the management of a public good, but who see themselves as disruptors and um, market, you know, innovators and so forth. And so it's kind of like, I mean, the leadership of a lot of our institutions are business oriented. And that has been the critique of neoliberalizing higher ed for quite a while. But this sort of seems like, oh, uh, what's the like, what's the phrase in like video game, the like final boss? This is the final boss of, of neoliberal education. And perhaps it's the grad students at Temple who have to win, you know? I mean, I hope. Yeah, totally. I'm glad they're coming on the heels of what happened at UC and the mm-hmm. overall militancy. Um, I hope they can win. And I also think just as a reminder, because it goes back to our interview with MAGA, that like, just so the people who aren't in our industry understand, like graduate students essentially have a full-time job doing their studies or research, depending on, you know, if they have seminars and if they have research work to do, and then they have to earn some money in order to live. So when someone makes $21,000, it's not like they have a bunch of other hours in the day to go out and get another job. Right. Right. Like, I mean, being a student is usually more than 40, 40 hours a week's worth of work. Plus on top of that 20 hours a week of TAing or whatever, you know, plus obviously whatever are your, you know, unpaid labor that you do at home. Exactly. Where is where is more work supposed to, you know, where is there supposed to be more time to work? Yeah. So the essential nature of this struggle, which MAGA laid out, is who will be able to do this grad student thing? Is it only going to be the super rich? Is it only going to be the super rich plus vastly indebted other people? Or is it going to be available to, to all? Right. Like, do we need graduate students? <laughs> yes, you need to train people in various fields. Uh, the reproduction of knowledge requires it. Um, do universities need to rely on them on for so much teaching and research? Well, they could potentially not if the, they're they're getting a good deal out of it. So, I don't know. Um, I don't know what these these uh, business leaders envision as the future of. Well, I'll tell you, David. Because Jason Wingard wrote an op-ed for Inside Higher Ed last summer called Higher Ed Must Change or Die. And he starts with the image. I'm a little confused about this because it's referencing something that I don't remember. So it says um, he's referring. Well, he refers to Nokia CEO Stephen Elop, who delivered a memo to his employees in 2011 saying basically saying that Nokia needed to adapter or it was going to go under um but he used this reference of standing on a burning platform referring to an oil rig explosion and one worker's choice to either remain on the fury precipice or jump almost 100 feet into the icy north sea so i guess that's the image that he wants us to have in mind when we're thinking about like the state of higher ed and i guess continuing with things as they are is remaining on the fury precipice <laughs> and jumping into the icy north sea is like the risky but bold proposition that he's putting forward that's how i'm reading that metaphor i don't know he says i mean it's pretty straightforward what you would expect you know he says he starts by talking about enrollment decline 
okay, we know about enrollment decline. It doesn't have to be a problem. That doesn't have to be anything wrong with less students. You know, if 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 colleges were fully funded, then there is no problem if there's less students. You know, these things ebb and flow. But he says, imagine if a company lost nearly 10% of its profits in two years. The situation would be catastrophic. We have lost nearly 10% of our students, but where is our sense of urgency? What will it take for us to recognize that the status quo is not working? He then has like a historical period, which as a historian, I'm, he says the evolution can go, can be, uh, the evolution of education can be broken down into four phases agrarian starting in 1600 industrial knowledge i'm just gonna go out on a limb here and say this is not accurate history (laughs) sorry (laughs) well particularly this last part knowledge knowledge knowledge-based education guess what david we're not in that phase anymore that ended in 2009 with the recession we're now in the post-recession phase in the evolution of education where the value of of a degree has never been more in question and now we must collectively determine what comes next. Um, and then he um, then he hawks his book, The College Devaluation Crisis, and he talks about basically how employers now want to hire students straight from high school because they're cheaper and they don't feel that a college degree is necessarily meaningful. They can just give them a little bit of training like... Um, Hoot Spark Academy's social media certification course. Never heard of it. Um, so, you know, then he talks about how expensive higher ed is with just six in 10 Americans recently surveyed saying college is worth the time and money. Okay, we can agree on that. But he says the key to retaining the value of a degree is ensuring your graduates have the skills to change with any market. And then he talks about leveraging our industry and corporate par- partnerships pursuing entrepreneurial investments that seek to incubate alternative ventures so i don't know it's, it's yeah. That, yeah there's a there's a lot of there's like a lot of ideology just yeah. swirling around there yeah. i mean it's yeah. it's a frothy yeah. mix <laughs> it's a frothy yeah. mix you yeah. know i mean temples in the state of pennsylvania um, I was I recently heard about how Pennsylvania's governor is sort of moving towards um, removing uh, higher ed requirements for state, like for working for the state. So there is obviously. We yeah, he's know, responding to some real stuff. Yeah, responding yeah. to this notion that there aren't a lot of high quality opportunities for young people and you know people of any age without a college degree and that is a legitimate concern and that's definitely a legitimate concern for people thinking about their life chances um the notion that companies prefer people without college degrees i think is just pure pure like bs um yeah that's just like the fear-mongering i guess that this he's trying to create this climate of well and i just think merchant there's a little bit of a like proof is in the pudding like no one was forcing all those companies who have for years been hiring college grads to hire college grads like they're getting a lot of training for free because the states are you know states and families are footing the bill to do all kinds of things that happen at, in higher ed that don't happen at the high school level and you know i, I think it's just frustrating because we saw, you know, that 
finance capital wants to get in on the actions, right? And they're doing so through student loans and they're doing, th doing so through campus debt. And here you see just the tech industry and other sort of similar social forces that want to sort of just insert themselves into the revenue streams that, um, you know, the education is a huge business. And so just wanting to get some of that, you know, is, is uh, I don't know, is nefarious. Yeah, um, just I am not to take up too much more time, but I just wanted to also reference a couple of shorter articles which are from the perspective of the um the the students and the you know the the strikers and basically the labor movement and again it's just really emphasizing what are the stakes in this struggle and looking at what's happening at temple is almost like a flashpoint so there's a short piece up on verso it's called blow it up and it's by matthias fueling a tugsa member and I just wanted to just share, well, first of all, he talks a little bit about the history of Temple. I didn't know this, but I thought that it was interesting that it was founded in 1884 as a night school for the working class. Um, it was, tuition was free and there were no admission requirements. So interesting. How far we've come. I know how far we've come, <laughs> right? Um, so, you know, he just says, if Tugza were to lose, it would set a precedent of how far universities can go in breaking graduate student unions and strikes and get away with it. The stakes are high. The strike is no longer an internal issue to Temple University, but a marker and trendsetter of the future of academic labor in the U.S. And that does seem really important. You know, obviously, I think I talked about this last time, you know, imagining um, continuing to strike when your tuition remission and your health care have been taken from you. That's that's really hard. Those are really hard conditions. So I can certainly understand that, you know, individuals would feel um, really pressured to end the strike. But at the same time, it does create a situation where the, the resolution of the strike is going to send a message to other administrators in terms of, can we do this? Will this tactic work? So it feels like there's extra um, motivation. And I think what that really means is that the larger labor movement needs to really be supporting the strike, you know, because it's coming for them next. Um, you know, and, 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 and in terms of, I mean, because I think we've been, this is all pretty pessimistic, but what, what he points out is, uh, is the kind of the more optimistic flip side, which is really the power that academic workers hold, you know, when, when the ed sector is such a massive part of the economy. Um, he says, the modern American university is a hyper monopoly that in many cases is simultaneously a hedge fund, landlord, sports franchise, real estate investor, research company, nonprofit, police force, hospital, and health you know, healthcare employer. In many places, it's the largest employer in the city, right, or in the area. So the university is no isolated ivory tower, but rather a pillar of the economy, a site of capital concentration and capital flow on a massive scale. And then to point out the power of workers, all of this rests on a foundation of one kind of irreplaceable labor, that of providing educational instruction. Everything at a university is predicated on the maintenance of its stated goal of providing education and degrees in order to draw on the tuition accreditation, et cetera, et cetera, which makes all of its other functions possible. This means that those who provide the education to students are in a position of extreme leverage over the overall function of the university and the accompanying hundreds of millions of dollars that flow through it. 
labor organizing at universities is then a matter of direct importance to the labor movement at large, both nationally and globally. And I thought that was a really good way of framing that. Um, of course, you know, the 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 fact that all of this rests on worker, you know, educator power is, I think, um, very threatening to administrators. And that's what they're really trying to get rid of through all of their you know, neoliberal austerity measures, but at, as it stands, they haven't been able to do that. And there's a question of really whether you can replace, you know, the the human labor element of teaching and learning. Um, so, yeah. And then just really quickly on a similar vein, I was looking at an op-ed um, in CNN by Heather Ann Thompson, who's a historian. She wrote a really great book about the Attica uprising called Blood in the Water and has written about, you know, labor and race in Detroit. And she makes similar points just about how high the stakes are. You know, she starts, she starts by talking about basically, you know, the heyday of um, battles between, you know, these robber baron corporate leaders and, and labor and, and labor in like the, the homestead, um, where where was that the homestead massacre i don't want to get my history wrong here but gilded age you are the historian i know but you know i'm a historian (laughs) that like doesn't know a lot (laughs) i'm always messing up the presidents and things like that i remember what i would want to remember anyway so uh she sees this as you know a kind of a she's painting this in a similar light you know where you know we're, we're getting down to the raw that kind of like raw class conflict and um, the way that it gets resolved is going to set the tone for the future of what's going to be possible. What kind of repression of the working class can can the ruling class get away with? Um, she says, let, let me find a, a quote here. Uh, this latest move by Temple University sends an ominous signal to other employers everywhere. Imagine this sort of new no-holds-barred union-busting strategy being adopted in similar forms at other universities, other companies in other major American cities with their own large populations of already struggling citizens. This this is how the rich get richer and the poor get poorer in America. And it is a most familiar story. It is a story as old as the nation itself. And it is a story that we can't afford not to know. She Part of her point is also that, you know, we need to know this history of class struggle and, and the, the fact that the basic labor rights and protections that we take for granted today were, you know, n- never, never given to us as a right, but had to be fought for and and can be taken away at any point if we're not willing to fight to keep them. So, yeah, and I think it, I, I agree with both of those main um, articles and passages that you quoted. I really like both of them, and I think it presents some obstacles that we have within our industry. There's the internal obstacle of people seeing themselves as a part of those larger struggles, academic workers identifying as workers, that's come up on our podcast a few times. And I think I've seen, you know, I'm thinking of social media here, but I've seen some buzz, some talk about some of the big changes have been people in STEM sort of shifting their framework more towards understanding and identifying as workers and seeing the oppositional forces at play. Because for a lot of uh, union drives in the academy, the the difficulty has been more so on the science side 
getting people on the science side interested in signing cards and so forth. So that could be a change that's happening. And then in the broader public, seeing the struggles of the academy as relevant to broader working class struggles, which is an obstacle as well because of the overall sort of notion of the ivory tower and that kind of mythology. And of course, a lot of these struggles have to do with the way that university responded to working class people, marginalized people forcing their way into the doors, right? Tuition as a response to that, precarity in um, the faculty ranks as a response to, right, diversifying the faculty. Um, I mean, all of these things are related to struggles that happen outside of the academy. And so there's that analysis, but there's also just the vibes of like, are we, are we strictly this other place where things are just fancy and bourgeois, or is the, the academy something that's relevant to every, everybody out there? You know? So mm-hmm. it's a hard sell. I understand why it's a hard sell. Well, I do feel like there's some, there's there, I think we talked about this before too. I do think that's changing and these movements are helping to change that just because academia has changed so much and working conditions have gotten so much worse. I, I don't think that being a grad student worker or an adjunct seems so glamorous or elite, you know? No, and the reality of it is it isn't. And it's only really, it, it is only elite for those who are just super wealthy, right? The rest of the grad students out there are exactly what you would imagine, right? Like first person in their family to go to graduate school, don't have pre-existing just wealth, intergenerational wealth to draw on. They need a, a livable wage in order to do their studies. You know, this is, this is an access issue, right? So will working people have access to being knowledge producers? You know, I think it's a vision of the world that we want to live in is is that all people can be knowledge producers, not just the wealthy. Well, why don't we turn to your research, David? Yeah. So I have been kind of following the situation in Florida and uh, wanted to, uh, you know, kind of seed a conversation here on what's going on there. It's equally a hellscape, but um, I wanted to start by just covering some of the things that are going on and then get into the organizing. So Florida education-wise for higher ed, there's a lot of things happening at once. One of them is Governor DeSantis has pursued a strategy of attacking one institution that is most sort of closely aligned with liberal values, the New College of Florida. And for those of us in the Pacific Northwest, the New College is somewhat like Evergreen, a public institution that sort of resembles a classic liberal arts private school in the notion of being small, being quirky, no grades. So New College has like under a thousand students, there's no grades, a curriculum that's designed around student inquiry with professors. So it's really different than the like UW Madison, Michigan, big type stuff. And 
DeSantis has appointed several members of the new college board who are prominent conservatives like Chris Rufo, and then that board fired the president and installed a political appointee, a former Republican lawmaker, as the president of the school interim president. So the basic fear of what's going on there is that it's this playbook of using the board to restructure the public universities. Additionally, in January, DeSantis put in a request that 12 of the public schools send medical data from their campus on which students access gender affirming care through their campus health centers. What? Is that yes. illegal? So that happened in January. Wait, can I ask a question? Yeah. What, when you said the public schools, you're talking about the K through 12 system now? No, sorry, the higher ed. So I am only focusing on higher ed here. So there were 12 schools within the Florida higher ed system that the request came down to. The request was to submit the data by February 10th. As far as the journalistic accounts that I could find, six schools had delivered the information <gasps> shame yeah and the other Shameful. six I'm, I'm not entirely sure so yeah so this is sort of an executive action using uh executive authority to request information from within you know a public sector institution obviously very shameful i mean your response is is sort of just you know that's exactly it right like this is absolutely shameful very scary obviously for people who we would hope access met the medical care that they need um, under privacy rights, under bodily autonomy, and, and so forth. And uh, to just even have that context around it strikes me as very scary uh, for individuals at those campuses. Additionally, so those were two of the big ones. And then the third one most recently is that the legislature submitted a bill, HB 999, which would do a variety of things if passed. Now it's in subcommittee, but the bill would give college boards more control over tenure, including the ability to review tenured professors at any point in time without cause. It would prevent, it would prevent general ed courses uh, dealing with some of those issues that the right has attacked, like diversity, equity, and inclusion, critical race theory. So sort of trying to create a kind of firewall around gen ed courses as if that stuff is not appropriate in gen ed. And then also would eliminate gender studies and a few other of those disciplines that are under attack. So HB 999 has been introduced and Florida has been under trifecta Republican control in the governor, Senate, and House for you know a couple of decades now. So I don't know the status of that legislation, how likely it is to pass, but just the overall picture, if Temple's president seemed like the final boss of higher ed, it is possible that there is another boss afterward <laughs> and it is DeSantis, but it you can kind of like see- There's always another boss. <laughs> there is, yeah. Yes, yeah, exactly. Um, you can see DeSantis's vision of executive authority through college boards. So and, can I ask a question? Yes. These college boards, they're all political appointees? So yeah, for the most part, right, that governors um, in a lot of states have control over who is on a board. And it tends to be 
this is one of those things where things that can be customary can obviously get, you know, pretty partisanized for lack of a better way to put it, right? So like previous Republican governors clearly didn't stack the new college board with conservative activists, but they still had the power to appoint them. So here it's, it's DeSantis really turning up that power um, and doing so in a way that is um, trying to change the, the character of the institution. So in go ahead. I was going to ask about well cuz just the the board thing was reminding me of um sometimes in my classes I talk about when we talk about the politics of textbooks and we talk about like the various controversies in Texas around <laughs> textbooks. I mean there's all I feel like every year there's another one where they're like slaves we're happy. You know, like they're they're right, always like right. coming up with some but there there was a whole thing maybe around a decade ago where they had a appointed board you know there's a documentary made about it and they they just made all of these sweeping changes you know evolution is a just a, a theory um you can't talk about like hip-hop music you have to talk about country music like every you know replace rap with country like you know and and changes in the way of that slavery is talked about of course things like that but you know when you looked at the composition of these boards it was like a, a dental assistant uh, you know, people who had no background in education, not that there aren't arch conservative people who <laughs> who have training in education, but they were just these like random people who were making these decisions over what the content of K through 12 education. So I, I don't know if, if that's what these higher ed boards are as well, you know? Well, I think that K through 12, <laughs> the difference between K through 12 and higher ed comes into play here, which is that you know, in a lot of states in K through 12, there are um, faculty in K through 12 have less control over their curriculum and there mm -hmm. tends to be either the Department of Ed or um, the school board itself has some sort of control over curriculum. Whereas these boards are like boards of trustees. And so they're kind of, you know, they are political appointees and their main role is in kind of hiring and firing the president, typically. So speaking at my own, of my own institution now, I know it's a different state, but like the community college system, each community college in Washington has a board of trustees and the governor plays a role in appointing the board, but the board kind of can set the tone of the institution when they fire or hire a new president. What HB 999 would also do is give board members power over tenure decision and hiring decisions. So that's where the legislative process is kind of linking up with executive authority, because as of right now, it seems like DeSantis can appoint people, but there is that piece where those appointees, they might be able to influence the president of a college, but they can't just like fire a tenured prof. The legislation could potentially lead in that direction if it passes, because it would give boards more statutory power over tenure and therefore obviously over the curriculum. Mm. But the bill also included specific banning of certain curriculum. So it does take a more proactive role in the, in the curriculum. So what kinds of things have happened? I know overall in the media, there is a, in, you know, centrist center lib media, there is a pretty big obsession with DeSantis and I don't wanna only center him in the conversation. So what is it that people have done to fight back? And I think it's been pretty, um, pretty cool to see. There were a variety of groups on these campuses that 
push back on that request for data. And um, for example, at USF, uh, University of South Florida, students uh, with the Trans Plus Student Union put out a petition to, you know, to try to demand that their institution not send the data. Absolutely. Yeah, right? I mean, it's unconscionable. Yeah. And that type of organizing, which which was happening in January, kind of led into the things that are happening right now. And so there were groups that got involved in Solidarity, uh, Dream Defenders, and some of the College Democrat groups that, that sort of began working in Solidarity. And these social forces have then led to, most recently, last Thursday, a walkout across the state of Florida. So a student walkout, February 23rd, multiple campuses participating. Um, the Dream Defenders, which is a, um, a group that came about in the aftermath of the, uh, when George Zimmerman murdered Trayvon Martin and has been a kind of abolitionist, socialist, chapter-based organization in Florida, they were organizing under the, the hashtag, the, the slogan, Can't Ban Us. So the Thursday walkout was kind of the can't ban us day of action. And on many campuses, uh, students walked out. They also held things like teach-ins after or once people walked out. So there was a kind of grassroots education, of course, targeting those subjects that are being cut off, being banned and so forth. For example, I know on one of the campuses, they were doing uh, Donna Murch's new book, Asada Taught Us. Is that the name of it? Yes, Asada Taught, taught Me. Uh, as one of their teach-in books, and Haymarket had provided some of those texts to, to people for those for the teach-in. So that kind of bubbling up energy is happening among student groups. They're somewhat, as far as I can tell, federated or working under an umbrella called Standing for Freedom. Oh man, where are my notes here? <laughs> I don't want to get things wrong. Yeah, Standing for Freedom, that could be anything. You might be inadvertently referencing some like gun rights group. Stand for freedom. Yeah. And actually, if you if you if you Google stand for freedom, you will get some conservative conservative things come up. But stand for freedom is a coalition that's bringing together those college Democrats, the dream defenders, some of the other gender justice, trans justice groups uh, across campuses and working with faculty to, you know, to do some of those teach-ins and so forth. And they have a March planned for March 8th, which I think will be after we release this episode. Um, but that's the kind of thing that's going on on higher ed campuses in Florida. Well, it's great to see that kind of reaction as it should be. I mean, it would be really worrisome if there wasn't that kind of reaction. I'd like to see um, more student activism in solidarity in other places. I mean, the that stuff about people's private medical information is chilling. You know, that's that's really chilling. I don't know what they you know plan to do with information that they've collected but nothing good. Um, and obviously it's part of a broader trend right now of legislation at the city and statewide level to really um, ban trans healthcare and particularly for young people, um, this just attack on trans existence. So I, I hope that connections are being made and you know we, we need a national movement. Yeah, and the situation in Florida strikes me as probably one of the starkest examples of the alignment of the various forces. 
you know, um, a lot of these things are coming hard and fast and around the same time. And I think it's providing at least for me, it's providing that clarity about kind of whose side are you on, right? Because it can be one of the one of the concerns, one of the worries that I always have is right when you're um, oh the faculty union or the labor union isn't as interested in trans issues because they see it as identity politics in a kind of negative light or whatever, and that 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 fracturing or that notion that not following that notion of like uh, injury to one is an injury to all. But with all of this happening at the same time, you've got the attack on trans health, you've got the attack on um, the subjects that are being taught that have to do with gender and race. And you also have the attack on tenure. It's like, again, strategy wise, is that a good strategy for the for them? Because it does seem to present to the rest of us that our fates are intertwined and that we need each other and we can't leave anybody behind when we struggle. Of course, my hope is that that's, you know, that's a part of the awakening and that's a part of the labor movement's awakening. Um, and it makes me think of, you know, we talked with Rich and Joanna about the campus debt reveal project, and they had talked about strong bonds coming with students uh, and faculty based on yeah. faculty supporting a kind of anti-racist campaign that the students were leading. And that is our pathway forward, I think, you know. Yeah. And I mean, I do think that's kind of a common dynamic in situations of like heightened crisis where it's like if you lose the loss is really devastating and brutal um, but if you win the victory can be really profound and um, widespread so you know stakes high all around yeah yeah and uh, it doesn't seem like in the immediate short term there is a political like meaning the like electoral politics pathway for Florida and so that strikes me as very clear. The social movements, labor movement, social justice movements are kind of our main avenue, um, which obviously you know. looks like the college Dems are kind of trying to do some stuff. Right. I mean, one would hope that they don't get too far in maybe trying to co-opt some of some of this and, you know, steer it towards electoral stuff too much. But. Yes, that would definitely be a concern. And, um, you know, it does seem like the college Dems, campus college Dems are part of this. I have seen like there's a prominent um, Democratic state lawmaker who has been a bit front and center in the media attention. Uh, you know, so, uh, from the distance that we are, it is kind of hard to tell, but um, co-optation definitely would be an issue. Um, and that's where it would be great to have have some of these student organizers come on and, and have a conversation with them. Yeah, well, we're hopefully going to be able to make that happen. We're trying. If you're listening to this and you're a student organizer in Florida, hit us up. Yes. If you are a student organizer in Florida, if you teach or work on new college campus, if um, you experience any of this stuff in Florida, please send us a message. Uh, we're, we're available by email, we're available on Twitter, we're available on Instagram, and uh, we'll put all that information in the show notes. Since it sounds like we're kind of wrapping up, I since we're talking about 
that I wanted to remember to plug the strike fund for Tugsa. Um, we will put the link to it in the show notes, but they do have a, a, a strike fund, Tugsa. I hope I'm saying Tugsa right. I mean, I must, I don't know. Maybe they go around and they say T-U-G-S-A and then I, I sound like a weirdo, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I think that must be right. Okay. So anyway, Tugsa.betterworld.org. They have a strike fund and it sounds like they really need money. Yeah. Well, this is, I think, also a good point of just being like, what is it that you do from elsewhere when you're supporting a strike, right? And um, uh, monetarily, strike funds, make a donation. That could be a personal donation. Of course, think about the the pre-existing org, orgs and unions that we're a part of. I'm thinking about myself here, right? So what has my union done or said about the temple strike? I think the tendency of my union is to not think very much about researchers and research institutions because we're a community college. But, you know, maybe I need to get that on our general membership meeting and see if we can make a donation, those kinds of things. Uh, sending uh, solidarity statements from your union or from your org, uh, supporting on social media, all that kind of stuff uh, is going to help because people, when they get that message that they lost their health care, right, it's like you're in a tough spot. And uh, if you're receiving messages of solidarity from all over the world, that that helps. If you're receiving, uh, if your GoFundMe for your strike fund is filling up fast, that helps too. So yeah, there's a lot we can do. Yeah. Yeah. So this was a little bit of a different episode. But hopefully you you found this news roundup informative and our conversation interesting. Um, we'd love to hear any of our listeners' thoughts too. You can you know reach out to us through Instagram and Twitter. Um, we'll put links in the show notes to the articles that we mentioned as well as to the strike fund. Yes, and uh, until next time. Until next time. Our theme music is by Nigel Weiss. Our artwork is by Arthur Kay. You can find more of their artwork at rotradio.tumblr.com. We would love it if you subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. Rate and review us on all the major platforms. Thanks for listening. Bye.